This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Today we'll be focusing on um, doing some neuroanatomy on the limbic system, which is, as you'll see, related to our presentation topic by Dr. Clean, Introduction to Epilepsy. Again, we'll start off with some few, a few definitions that I think will be helpful for these talks, and then we'll hop right into limbic system functions. I'll discuss some of the structures that are related to the limbic system, including the hypothalamus, olfactory bulb, hippocampus, amygdala, and then I'll also talk about how the limbic system is involved in different neurologic diseases just to orient you to ventral and anterior, which refers to the front of the body as opposed to dorsal and posterior, the back rostral is anything that's closer to the head. And then caudal is anything closer to the tail or the um, lower back. And then a few new terms. When we image the body, we have different planes that we can image in so that we can get um, a different, a 3D, good 3D view and reconstruct it in our heads. A horizontal plane is also called a transverse or axial section. And then a cut through the front of the head, like a crown is a coronal section. And then down the middle on the side is known as a sagittal section. And we'll be using these terms uh, to describe the anatomy today. Okay, so the limbic system, um, limbus means ring and it, the limbic system really refers to a ring of different, both cortical structures and the structures sort of below the cortex that form a ring around the top of the brainstem, which we talked about last week. The limbic cortex is part of the oldest part of the cortex in terms of evolution. So it, it's been around for the longest period of time. And um, in blue, you'll see the different parts of the cortex and the different planes. Again, the sagittal plane, and this is looking from the bottom, the ventral surface. And so this is sort of an axial view. And then this is um, a view from the side. The limbic system controls homeostatic function. So neuroendocrine and autonomic function of the body. It also is tied with our sense of smell, olfaction, Memory, it's very much a key structure of memory and then also a, a critical structure in how we process emotions and uh, what uh, determines our motivational drive. This is just a schematic of how complicated uh, of the few structures in the limbic system are. They're all interconnected and interrelated. So we'll be focusing on olfaction, the hippocampus, amygdala, and the hypothalamus. But really, these have a lot of crosstalk, not just with each other, but also with um, the, the limbic cortex 
and then um, different areas and tracks that connect the limbic cortex uh, with these other structures. And then they also have crosstalk with the brainstem that we discussed in the spinal cord um, for the last two weeks. First, let's talk about the hypothalamus. It is the hypothalamus, it's underneath the thalamus. It really controls so many parts of the body we take for granted. The autonomic system, both parasympathetic, um, which controls digestion and um, sort of quietness, and then the sympathetic nervous system, which is our classic fight or flight autonomic system. The hypothalamus is also important for regulating appetite, thirst, temperature, sleep, and circadian rhythm, and it really controls all the hormones that are produced from our pituitary gland, which control growth, reproduction, and metabolism, and many more, too many to list on here. But it is uh, an important structure. Uh, it's is thought to be, um, can be affected. And when it isn't affected, it can really um, have a large effect on people. Um, it's thought to be involved in eating disorders. Uh, it can also be involved in seizures. And then um, many think that it's important for headaches as well. Olfaction is really tied to the limbic system, so I thought we could go over it today. Uh, the olfactions, our sense of smell really starts out at these olfactory receptors that are along our nasal mucosa and the nose. And these neurons, receptor neurons, sensory neurons, come in through the cribriform plate, and you can see these are little tiny holes in the skull and they synapse onto neurons in the olfactory bulb. So you can imagine anytime someone has a um, traumatic brain injury, these neurons can be sheared very easily. And so that's why people often lose their sense of smell after hitting their head, because these are just um, cut off based on the shearing force of the fall. Then the neurons in the olfactory bulb they synapse into different nuclei and project into different cortical regions, including the entorhinal cortex, which we'll hear about later, the basolateral amygdala, and also different olfactory auras and areas. Next, we'll let's talk about the hippocampus. This is a key structure that's involved in memory. It's a, although very complex, um, it's known for its sort of structured, ordered circuitry. And the hippocampus is really the area where we came to form our understanding of learning and memory. Um, so some key early experiments in the hippocampus showed that you know, cells that wire together, also fire together. So the more you stimulate two cells in sync over time, the more likely they're able to form a stronger connection. And this is known as long-term potentiation, which is a form of plasticity. And plasticity is a term that we use to 
describe how um, the brain is able to change its connection. So even though we don't think that neurons kind of uh, new neurons aren't growing and forming all the time, we do know that neurons actually make connections with, with each other that are decreased or increased over time. And this is termed long-term or short-term plasticity. You can kind of see here, here's an old experiment that was done in the hippocampus uh, where they stimulated a set of cells in the CA1 and then here they gave a very strong stimulus to a group of cells. And then um, after the strong stimulus, they see that the cells tended to fire more together and have a stronger correlation. And the hippocampus is this um, sort of jelly roll-like structure here. But you can see it also is very long in the sagittal plane. So it's kind of like a tube. Um, I should also say that the hippocampus um, makes connections here with um, the entorhinal cortex, which is part of the limbic cortex, and through its connections to the entorhinal cortex and other parts of the limbic system, uh, really is thought to uh, play a key role in memory formation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. The amygdala is an almond-shaped structure. It's involved in also memory making and um, making decisions and choices. It's also critical for different emotions, particularly fear. Damage to the amygdala, um, if both sides are damaged, that leads to sort of tame, um, less aggressive behavior, although uh, people or monkeys, which is what it's most studied in, can become hypersexual. There can be some compulsive eating behavior and um, loss of fear sensation. On the flip side, stimulating the amygdala can lead to uh, overexcitability, rage, and fear. The conditions where the limbic system is really affected include conditions like seizure, which we'll hear more about from Dr. Clean. I just wanted to put this up here. Um, seizures are uncontrolled electrical disturbance in the brain. And depending on where the seizure activity originates, it can cause different auras, movements, actions, loss of consciousness. But this, these are just um, intracortical recordings where there's electrodes placed just overlying the brain. And you can see here, this is right where the seizure starts in this area. You can see uh, this pattern that's changed from uh, before. And then you can kind of see it spreading in different er electrodes to different areas of the brain. And then here, by now, 10 seconds later, the brain activity is way out of control. And you can just see these dark lines where the activity is going haywire. And this is sort of a schematic, <clears throat> which uh, was actually developed by Dr. Clean, where you can see where the seizure is originating and how it propagates in space and time over the brain. Another thing that can happen in the limbic system, so people who have refractory seizures 
Um, sometimes we need to remove that tissue that's propagating the seizures. And a famous case of HM, which we'll also hear about later, he had severe refractory seizures and had surgery to remove both sides of the hippocampi and also the uh, medial temporal lobe structures. And his seizures definitely did improve after the surgery, but then he could no longer form memories um, or remember new experiences after five minutes. So he could repeat things that you told him right away. So he could re register what you're telling him. His intelligence remained the same, but after five minutes, he couldn't remember anything, even if you gave him hints. His remote childhood memories were intact. He could even learn some motor tasks and get better at them, but he didn't remember ever learning them. The limbic system can also be affected in different conditions like infections with different viruses or can be targeted when the brain produces autoimmune antibodies against itself. Uh, that can target the limbic system. So here you can see lighting up of the hippocampus, which we learned about earlier, and then also the surrounding temporal lobe structures. And when viruses or antibodies related to cancer or just antibodies that the body makes on its own affects this region, it's known as limbic encephalitis. I also put down cancer like lymphoma or glioblastoma, Cancers can also affect these limbic structures. Um, and then you could also have strokes that cause deficits. And, and this is more of a, um, instead of these, which is more of a slower process um, with stroke, it might be more immediate. With cancer, it would be gradual and progressive. Okay, so that's a short overview of the limbic system. These are the references unless I had uh, made notations in the notes. And today I'm particularly excited to introduce Dr. John Clean. He specializes in epilepsy care. He's an active neuroscientist here at UCSF who uses signal processing to study diagnosis and treatment of epilepsy. He got his PhD and MD uh, in PhD in neuroscience and MD at Dartmouth School of Medicine. And then he came here to UCSF for residency and completed his clinical and research fellowship here. So he'll be showing us some of the new technology that I previewed where he developed um, and programmed how to map brainwave recordings onto brain images to help really pinpoint the origin of seizures. And his lab also works on very basic questions about how electrical impulses are propagated over areas like the hippocampus um, and how they might reveal to us how information is processed in the hippocampus and how it might be networked. And so I um, was doing very exciting stuff. So, um, and he'll be talking to us about, just give us a broad overview of epilepsy and some of the newer developments in the field over the past couple of years. Great, thanks for that wonderful info, uh, intro, uh, Dr. Wang. And Dr. Wang was one of my uh, sort of um, people who trained me back uh, when I was in residency here. So I really appreciate um, being able to work with her through these years too. It's been wonderful. 
Um, but yeah, I'm very excited to be here. This is great. So having a lot of people interested in neuroscience and neurology, this is um, fantastic. It's the place to be, I, 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 would, I would say. <laughs> and so I'm going to talk to you um, more about epilepsy primarily and kind of talk about some of the history of things and then um, a pretty wide overview of the newer sorts of forms of treatment that we have and the way that we're trying to understand this condition. So, um, but what is epilepsy? We've all probably heard of it, right? But um, what is it exactly? So it's a neurological condition with recurrent unprovoked seizures. So recurrent meaning they um, happen more than once um, and then unprovoked meaning sort of spontaneous. Um, not due to something directly at that time. So, um, but what are seizures? Um, so seizures are paroxysmal, meaning sort of uh, sporadic or randomly occurring. Stereotypes, meaning very consistently the same. Uh, spells of altered movement or sensation or experience or consciousness. Um, all of these different uh, things are a possibility for seizures. And, uh, but the key part is that they all result from excessive electrical activity in the brain. So epilepsy being a condition where these recur for someone over time. Um, how common is it? And we've all hopefully heard of it. Um, it's actually the fourth most common neurological disorder behind migraine, stroke, and Alzheimer's disease. So it's pretty common. It's actually 1.2% of the population. That means over 3 million people in the U United States. And so you probably may know uh, people with epilepsy. Um, considering that one in 26 people will develop epilepsy at some point in their life. Not that, so 1.2% of the population have it at a given time, but one in 26 will develop, a, develop it at some point, whether it be in childhood and then hopefully it coalesces and goes away or um, don't have it throughout most of their life and maybe it comes later on, uh, but yeah, pretty common. Uh, so we talk about seizures and that's technically the definition, right? But they are actually just one symptom of epilepsy, there's a lot of other things that occur for people with epilepsy. Um, we call them, a lot of them can be called comorbidities. So conditions or um, issues with health that happen in parallel with epilepsy. And these consist of things like um, psychiatric disorders, such as um, low mood or depression, anxiety, um, cognitive impairment. It's a big interest of mine is you know, memory loss, um, even just word finding difficulty and sleep disturbances but plenty of other things too. So injuries and accidents due to the seizures, um, you know, the medications themselves can cause side effects depending on which ones and how high of doses they are. Other diseases maybe may put people at risk, higher risk for obesity, stroke, hypertension, or high blood pressure and bone disease. And then even mortality. So uh, unfortunately due to injuries and accidents, but even just what we call sudden unexpected death and epilepsy and even suicide rates can be higher. So this is a very, um, important condition to be looking at not only just for seizures but for everything else that can happen with patients with epilepsy but what causes it so is there just like one straightforward cause of course not right there's actually many causes and um one thing that is increasingly known now is that there can be a genetic predisposition to epilepsy sometimes there's a mutation in a single gene that can cause epilepsy um, in a given patient but a lot of other times it might just be a predisposition. So maybe there are a couple of genes that might put somebody at higher risk to get epilepsy. Uh, but there are many, many other cases of epilepsy where we have no idea what their cause or they have a completely non-genetic um, explanation. So head trauma um, or injury to the brain and similarly strokes um, causing injury to the brain, infection, same idea, um, brain malformations. These usually mean 
things that happen during development of the brain early on that end up um, giving altered anatomy of just one, like one or a couple of different areas. Um, and these areas can be irritable to the brain and generate seizures. Similarly for tumors, sometimes it's the first presenting symptom uh, of a new brain tumor. Um, and then neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease can show higher rates of epilepsy as well. But you know, it may seem like we have all the answers here, but certainly we don't. A cause is never found in over half the cases. That number is kind of getting smaller now as we uncover more about genetic predispositions and other disorders, but still there's quite a few people where we unfortunately can't give them a good explanation at this time yet about why they developed epilepsy. So how do we diagnose it? It's actually what we call a clinical diagnosis where I really just need to hear the story about um, what someone describes, uh, certain events that either they experienced and um, remembered or have uh, sort of details about, or that their family members may have seen or a friend, uh, and even just the things that they say, the way they describe it, there are certain key characteristics of seizures that we can pinpoint really just from hearing the history from what someone describes to us about this. Um, but there are a lot of other options, though, too, in particular, we can use MRIs. Um, so this is like a really strong, a great imaging study that uses um, really powerful magnets to make images of the brain. And sometimes we can find a cause that would explain why someone's having these symptoms that could be seizures. That's uh, helpful to us, especially if it's for kind of on the fence about whether this is epilepsy or something uh, else. And I'll talk about what we call a differential diagnosis or other potential explanations um, in another slide later on. Um, and then EEG is also extraordinary, extraordinarily helpful in many cases, but certainly not all. It's, uh, this is a brainwave test, so I'll just describe it in a moment here. Um, but actually, if I take 100 people that have epilepsy, for sure, and I give them an EEG, only about three quarters of them, if that, will have an abnormal result on the EEG. So it's not a perfect test because it'll actually miss some uh, cases of epilepsy. And really that's why it all kind of comes back to the history. Um, just knowing a lot of different ways that epilepsy can present itself, seizures and risk about risk factors as well. Those are the key things that we need for, to diagnose epilepsy. So I mentioned EEG, let's kind of get down deep into this a little bit because it's actually a really neat test that was developed about a century ago. And now with new computational methods and you know data-driven, uh, initiatives and just computer science in general, we're able to look at EEG in whole new ways now. But it all boils down to um, the first EEG that was obtained by Hans Berger, a professor in Germany back in 1924. This is the actual, one of the original recordings. So this is the brainwave trace on, on the top here. It was drawn by a pen that was being moved around by the voltage changes um, by an from an electrode in the back of a person's head. And then below it, he shows like what a, what a sine wave would look like at about 10 hertz, just showing like what we would expect for a perfect cycling sine wave, just to show that the brainwave is actually creating cycles of activity. And uh, that was called the alpha rhythm because it was discovered first. So, um, and it was measured from the back of the head. And we see the same rhythm today in EEGs. It's one of the key things that we look for right off the bat to say, oh, there's the alpha rhythm. Uh, so that was the first EEG almost a century ago now. Um, but that was one electrode, actually technically two uh, electrodes, because to measure it, you have to take the difference between two electrodes. Um, but people were doing EEGs sort of in different ways for a couple of decades. And then finally, they said, you know what, we need some standardization. We need to have 
an EEG put on the same way for everybody each time so that we can, we clinicians can talk to other clinicians about where things are coming from and researchers can talk to other researchers about the same and so on. So they created this system called the 1020 system. And it's uh, basically measured distances between anatomic landmarks, like the right on the top of the nose bridge there, um, to this little bump in the back of the head. And they take percentages of the distance and they put electrodes on those spots you can see over here in this. And it gives you, and you have like names too, the odd numbers are on the left side, the even numbers on the right side. And you can see that those electrodes now are um, representing these brainwave traces on this screen. So this is still what we use today, actually, the 1020 system that was developed in 1957. It's, it's completely standardized, which is great. So I kind of described a lot of this now, but um, an EEG itself is uh, electrodes temporarily pasted on the scalp. Um, but we have trained technicians that do this all the time at UCSF, actually one of the um, one of the biggest centers in the West Coast. So we have a lot of EEGs going on, but they temporarily paste these electrodes on the scalp. Here's just an example of one pasted right behind the ear but they put them all over in these different spots that I just showed you. And then we get these squiggly lines, kind of like you saw before. And, uh, but yeah, the key part is that it's standardized so that when we look from patient to patient, we're able to interpret things much more quickly and know where they're coming from on the brain. Okay, so this is just an example of normal background activity. We call it background, just like your background, regular rhythms that we would expect about things. And um, just of note, this is a little... This little blip right here where all the electrodes are kind of moving down at, at once, that's actually an eye blink. So it doesn't pick up just brain waves, it picks up other things like eye movements because there's a bit of a, um, an electrical field um, uh, in, our, in our eyes, if you can imagine that. Um, but once that happens, the person's actually closing their eyes and then the alpha rhythm comes out. And so it's kind of neat to see the same thing that uh, that doctor about a century ago saw at that point, we still can see today uh, very quickly and readily. And so, Moving on from a normal EEG, this is actually an EEG with a seizure. So in the very beginning of this, you can see this um, sort of dark activity. That's actually muscle activity. So again, not just brain activity is picked up, but even muscle activity. But then once this kind of goes away, um, or recedes, we see this sort of choppy, sharp activity across pretty much all the electrodes. Um, but especially the ones over the left side, these, these are on the left side of the brain, all these here, and these are on the right side of the brain, these over here. And they all look a little bit abnormal or kind of choppy and sharpened, but it's stronger and larger in amplitude or larger in size over the left side. So that's a left temporal lobe seizure. With EEG, we can, I just mentioned it's a left-sided seizure versus a right-sided seizure. We can even get down closer in terms of where we localize things, meaning where we find the focus to be. And a lot of times seizures are actually caused by a single focus. And what is that caused by? I mentioned some. Um, causes before, but I want to just kind of go into structural causes of epilepsy. So I mentioned tumors and such, but there are a lot of other structural causes. These are all different conditions. So polymicrogyria, focal cortical dysplasia, these are developmental uh, symptoms or developmental problems. And then, um, you know, these conditions here, heterotopic gray matter. Uh, we also have vascular malformations or um, Basically, and then epilepsy-associated tumors, so ganglioglioma in particular, and uh, DNETs, and then, so they're a very long name there for that one. But one thing we often look for, uh, for adults with especially new onset epilepsy, is not necessarily all these things. These are usually, uh, they're more rare, they're, and they're picked up usually pretty early for people with these sorts of uh, issues. What we find in adults, um, actually the most common 
uh, adult epilepsy is temporal lobe epilepsy. And it's uh, the signature of that, if there is one on MRI, it is mesial temporal sclerosis. And that's what you see right here. This little section is the hippocampus, as Dr. Wong pointed out. And over here on MRI, there's that hippocampus again. And this special sequence of MRI gives us um, a bright spot where it's abnormal. And that's the hippocampus right there lighting up. So um, I'm mainly talking about focal seizures. And focal seizures essentially start in a single focus. But then they can cause problems by not just, you know, abnormal activity there and affecting whatever is supposed to go on in that brain region, but then by spreading to other regions. They might spread a little bit and then stop, but um, actually, in worst cases, they spread and involve an entire hemisphere. So this is a focus right here, and the seizure would start in this section and then start to spread to this cortex. It can actually spread to involve the entire hemisphere and the opposite hemisphere. So that's what we'd call a secondarily generalized seizure. And these are usually associated with falls, injuries, and a very strong um, uh, picture in terms of what the seizure look like, looks like. And the recovery is also very difficult from those. We can also get primary generalized seizures. These tend to have more genetic causes to them, but this is where um, the seizure kind of starts everywhere all at once. And there's conditions such as uh, absence epilepsy and juvenile monoclonic epilepsy. These are associated with generalized seizures, which kind of start in both hemispheres in really broad areas of the cortex at one time. So again, focal seizures or localization-related seizures that can secondarily generalize, and then primary generalized seizures that start kind of everywhere at once. So I wanted to give an example case, uh, and this is actually a patient that I saw back in residency. Um, and I saw this person in the ER and they said, to me, so Doc, I don't remember driving home. And I was like, oh, that's, so that's the symptom? It's like, that's, that's it. But it's a really big problem because, and then he kind of elaborated a little bit. So what happened is, I can go through this a little bit more, just, um, you know, young male, um, presented the ED, ER, um, describing an episode of amnesia during which he actually drove home successfully. So um, this was immediately preceded by a feeling of deja vu and right-sided headache. Essentially, he went out to dinner um, and then dropped someone off after that and then got in his uh, car and backed out of that person's driveway and then all of a sudden um, found himself in his home in the parking space with the scrape on his bumper. Um, and so he actually called 911 immediately after that. He took out his phone when he realized that he was just home and there was no answer for what had just happened in that stretch of time. And the ambulance came by and he explained the story to them, even though he looked fine at the time, but they were concerned too. I mean, this, is, this would be concerning to anyone. And they brought him to the ER and that's where he told me this symptom of I don't remember driving home, which is obviously a very significant event in this case. So, uh, and just to kind of put that in context here, no memory of driving home, but that's not just um, a simple like event, right? It's actually very complex, a lot of complex things to do. So he was able to drive along the route all the way home. He actually used a mapping. He always uses like a mapping sort of um, device that kind of shouts out the directions to him. So he followed the, the usual route home, but even some extra directions that he had to go. He was able to punch in the code uh, for his parking structure and then able to park in his specific parking spot. And then it's only after he got out of the car that he realized that he didn't have any memory of all these things. So how could this happen and what would cause this? I mean, the name of this um, lecture is of course, intro to epilepsy, but just to 
describe some other things that it's important to think through. There are a lot of different causes of transient amnesia, transient meaning temporary. On the order of seconds to minutes, you can get the transient cognitive impairment due to actually epilepsy, but it's really just due to a really short burst that will happen, a hippocampal spike, for example. Um, and on the order of minutes, things like low blood sugar, hypoglycemia, um, a very, very short seizure, which this sounds like it could possibly be, uh, or on the order of hours. So alcohol, drugs of various sorts, migraines can potentially do this. Um, Post-traumatic, if someone gets hit in the head, they may get knocked out for a little while. Um, Non-epileptic or psychiatric uh, causes and um, transient global amnesia, which is kind of um, its whole, this whole separate uh, diagnosis of just an amnesia period, but not necessarily associated with seizures in most cases. And then even transient ischemic attack, which is thought to be a, a, a vascular cause. Dr. Wong mentioned limbic encephalitis, which is on the order of days to weeks, really, that someone would have amnesia. And then months, years, or um, through lifelong can be things like hippocampal stroke, um, or Wernicke's encephalopathy, or even uh, dementia, such as Alzheimer's disease. So there's a lot of things that can cause um, your memory to go down and be dysfunctional for a while and just your memory, uh, whereas the other functions of your brain are still relatively intact. But this one was pretty compelling for a possible seizure. And um, we had an EEG done for this patient. And on this one, the uh, blue traces are uh, on the left side, just to help orient. And then the red traces are on the right side. The rest of these are uh, just other areas kind of around and near the there's an EKG there. There's also to look for eye blinks, these eye electrodes nearby the eyes. And so on this EEG, we actually saw a spike. Um, that's a burst of activity. And it was over the right temporal area, the right temporal lobe. Uh, and then we saw a couple more examples of this. This is an abnormal um, sort of waveform to have in your EEG. And so that help, uh, helped us um, kind of boil things down so you know that this is probably um, a seizure, and it may be one that's affecting the hippocampus because of the amnesia period. Hippocampus is very involved in memory, especially ongoing new memories. And then also he mentioned, you know, I had deja vu right at the beginning of this. I just felt this feeling like I've been there before. Um, many of you, maybe all of you have felt deja vu before, and I don't want to cause any alarm. The incidence is really common, actually. It's in 30 to 95% of people, depending on the study that you see. So it's not specific for epilepsy, but in the setting of known epilepsy, when you have something like this, where there was a complete period of amnesia and other potential risk factors, um, that sort of disturbance of those memory systems could be consistent with a, a medial temporal lobe or a hippocampal onset. And this is just a picture showing the hippocampus in red in the entorhinal cortex right next door. They talk to each other a lot and um, activity between these two has been associated with that um, deja vu. Activity, even seizure activity um, for certain cases. Dr. Wong already mentioned the hippocampus. I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's actually my favorite brain structure uh, because it's just so interesting. Uh, and it's a really strange word though. I don't know if Dr. Wong mentioned this, but um, the word hippocampus actually means seahorse because some anatomists a long time ago thought that this structure looked like a seahorse in the brain. Let's see, you can see it there. Um, and it's been around evolutionarily for a long time. So in the rat, that's kind of what it looks like. It's more curved towards the top of the brain. And in a monkey, it looks a little bit more like ours, but even ours is extended even farther forward and sort of trimmed down a little bit. So it's been around for a long time. And that's really important actually, because you might be wondering, well, why do we keep talking about the hippocampus? Why does it 
why is it mentioned in the context of epilepsy a lot? It's technically old hardware. Think of it like a computer. Uh, you're using old hardware or what's called paleocortex, paleo meaning old. And through evolution, more and more cortex was stacked up on uh, this old hardware is interfacing with it because it does this incredible thing, which is our memory system. We have a time machine in our brain. We're able to think of any, uh, pretty much any memory we want to just go right there in our minds at that moment. Um, and these, this can be, of course, disrupted in, in certain conditions. And that's, but still, like the fact that we can do this is pretty incredible. But you know, there's a lot of re really neat things that humans can do, advanced language and all these other things. But all this is stacked up on a memory system that does a really magical thing, but it's uh, still old hardware. It's the only, um, or it's one of the only places in the hippocampus, or the, in the brain that has three layers. The only other place in the human brain that has three layers to it is the piriform cortex, which is important for smell. Um, but the rest of the cortex has six layers. So, so stacking up all these new, all this new machinery on old hardware could potentially predispose it to just being overwhelmed at times. And it's got really high, um, a really high density of what we call um, excitatory receptors uh, and so NMDA receptors. I think Dr. Wong mentioned those. So uh, there's too much excitation. This structure is really prone to being scarred and to develop epilepsy and seizures. So, oh, I mentioned that. Um, so yeah, I mentioned temporal lobe epilepsy and uh, the most common adult epilepsy that we see. And um, seizures originate from the temporal lobe. It's not always the hippocampus, but it commonly is because for the reasons I had just mentioned. So hippocampal sclerosis is what we would usually see for a scarred hippocampus. And by scar, really, I just mean that it's been damaged for some reason. It could be encephalitis, it could be a stroke or hippocampal stroke, or it could be just spontaneous. We don't really have a reason at this point. This is what it looks like microscopically. This is a normal hippocampus. You can see these really nice layers all organized. And then this is a, a hippocampus with sclerosis, much less organized. A lot of it is really not even present anymore and damaged down. Okay, so I've talked a lot about, well, I've talked about an example of epilepsy and the different types of them. Well, what do we do about them? We treat them with medicines, right? There are a lot of medicines for epilepsy. Uh, there's like dozens of them, actually. Before 1993, even back in the 1800s, there was potassium bromide, which is not used anymore, um, or except in maybe very rare cases. But there are quite a few that were uh, invented and put into practice before 1993. Then we had what's called the second generation here, uh, up to 2005. A lot more medicines came on the market. And then we had uh, quite a few more in the third generation, which is really um, from 2009 until now. And even in the last several years here, we've had three new ones uh, added, including Sonovamate just last year. So they all work by dampening or uh, toning down abnormal electrical activity or the excitation. Um, but the problem with that, as you can imagine, is sometimes we need activity. Well, we need, of course, uh, brain activity to do what we usually do, think, to go about our day. So side effects of them often can be drowsiness, dizziness, and other things like rash and weight gain can sometimes happen too. A lot of medicines, which is great, but... Um, does that mean, especially with all these new medicines, does that mean that we can control everyone's epilepsy? Unfortunately, that is very far from the case. So I mentioned that you know, three million, over 3 million people have epilepsy in the United States. Well, this is just a, a way to show you like you know, 10 by 10 dots here. So there's 100 dots. And um, the dots that are blue show you if each of these were people, the amount of people that would be seizure-free with the first drug. 
So new onset epilepsy, you try a single drug at a really good dose. And how many do you get control uh, of their epilepsy? Uh, about half, approximately. And if that first drug doesn't work, the natural thing is to try a second drug at a good dose. And of those, only another maybe 10% or you know, 10 to 15% get control with the second drug. So then we reach a really problematic area. We try a third drug, of course, but really only like four, actually less than 5% overall of patients will get good solid control of their epilepsy and seizures with a, a third drug after trying a first and second. So the rest of the patients really we call drug resistant or used to be called medically refractory. Um, but these are, this is epilepsy that has not responded to three drugs. And the reason that we define it as such is because you see these diminishing returns, a lot of blue dots, kind of a, a good amount of green dots, but then few orange dots. And so once you try a fourth drug, you could imagine it's only one or two people out of the rest here would get control. So about 800,000 Americans experience seizures despite taking anti-seizure medicines. So this is a really tough problem, but that's exactly why we're here. And especially at big centers, you know, level four epilepsy centers, this is really what we specialize in uh, because there's a lot of thinking that has to go into it. What can we do to get better control of their epilepsy? Be it maybe another type of targeted medicine approach or other approaches. Um, this is just another way to kind of show before I, I mentioned all these different drugs coming on the market, this is time on the x-axis dating back to the 1800s until about now. And then this is uh, the number of new anti-seizure drugs. The point of showing this slide, it's, it may seem kind of redundant, but the point is the percentage that are not seizure-free has been roughly the same this whole time. Like even now with all these drugs at our disposal, um, we're only getting about, you know, that? so it's like 68% uh, seizure-free on drugs. So it really hasn't changed much. So you could imagine that even more and more drugs that come out later on, unless they have some wildly different mechanism, we're being a little bit um, realistic in terms of the likelihood that they're gonna help. So we'd like to talk um, with those patients about other possibilities. Um, and I'm gonna mention sort of epilepsy surgery as one. And part of epilepsy surgery though would be, you know, well, what's the point of it? It's if seizures are coming from one specific spot in the brain uh, and that, seizure focus area is not doing any good for the person besides generating seizures, which is bad, um, should maybe take that area out. And as long as they, it doesn't overlap with an important part of their brain that they need, then they can actually get curative uh, surgery. And this is, you know, this is one of the very few, actually practically the only uh, curative solution for epilepsy is surgery. But we first have to really figure out where the seizures are coming from. So we use a combination of the things I already told you about, the scalp EEG, uh, really detailed 3T uh, uh, MRI. And then we use other really neat techniques called um, PET scan or positron emission tomography. This is where we have sort of a glucose or sugar molecule labeled in the bloodstream, and it can actually travel to the areas uh, of the brain and distribute itself on both sides, but it tends to go to seizure focus areas um, less. And so we'll see like what we call hypometabolism or less signal in those areas. And then in terms of... Uh, you know, I mentioned scalp EEG, but we can actually use not just voltage sensors, but magnet sensors. So we look at the magnetic fields generated by the brain. Um, this involves a bit of fancy physics, but um, MEG is magnetoencephalography. So it's, a, um, it's this device that looks like a huge hairdryer, basically kind of pointing to someone's head, but it's got th over 300 sensors on it. And it picks 
picked up electrical activity and we can actually use that to map and pinpoint where uh, the spikes and bursts of abnormal activity might be coming from. Here's an example where this little marker here is kind of pointing towards the right hippocampus for this person where those were coming from. And um, actually similarly, I'll jump over to this image here. This is electrical source localization. This is actually very similar to what I just described for MEG, um, but we use the scalp EEG electrodes. We can actually take this data here and give it to someone knows, who knows how to do this, such as my uh, colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Robert Knowlton, who is just a wizard at this sort of thing. Um, he uses a lot of fancy physics basically to take these same signals and triangulate where the start of a seizure is coming from in the brain. Kind of similar to when you have your cell phone and you're looking on your um, GPS, seeing your position, that's triangulated from multiple cell, cell phone towers around or even satellites. And so the electrodes here are kind of acting like cell phone towers and they're triangulating, triangulating the signal where it comes from. And then finally, another um, technology we use is called a SPECT scan. So this is another study where we're uh, injecting um, a labeled molecule. So it's got a radioactive label to it, but we inject it actually at the very beginning of a seizure. So a person would come in and stay with us in, one, in our inpatient monitoring unit. And we wait until they have a seizure and inject it right at the beginning. And it will go to kind of all the different places of the brain, but it will get picked up in the area that starts the seizure at a higher concentration. So then we can use some fancy imaging and uh, hopefully pinpoint the spot where it came from. Um, ideally, all of, the, all of these studies will align and say, there's the focus, there's your spot that you need to get. Um, but a lot of times it's much more complex as you can imagine, but still we are able to successfully localize quite a few seizures in people, um, and especially in particular uh, drug-resistant epilepsy. But what do we do then? I mentioned epilepsy surgery. So, you know, where do these studies get us? Well, these are just a couple more examples of the source localization just wanted to show. It's really nice. It helps us map things in 3D that way with scalp EEG. So hopefully we can pinpoint just one seizure focus. So this is an example where, you know, here's the brain, here's one single seizure focus. And then here's an example where you have a multiple seizure foci. So that's not a great scenario for surgery, which I'll mention in a moment. But if you have just one focus, that can be good. Um, and I mentioned before how this, the, they can lead to secondary generalization or secondary generalization. So if you can take out that bad spot, and not cause any neurological deficits for the person, that's ideal, but also since it will prevent, if you're preventing the seizure from starting, then you're of course gonna be preventing it from going into a larger seizure. That can be a really fantastic thing for, for people, just being either free of seizures, or sometimes if we can't quite get it where they're free of seizures, hopefully they at least have a good reduction in seizures. Epilepsy surgery can be actually very highly effective. Um, this is an example of what we might do for someone with right temporal lobe epilepsy. Usually the focus would be in the anterior or front part of the temporal lobe. And so we can remove this section of the brain and we do some special techniques to make sure that the person would not have an, a neurological deficit or a significant neurological deficit or problem if we take that out. Um, but then if we remove the focus, then they would be cured. Uh, these curves down here just show you uh, sort of the data behind this. So if you have time in uh, months on the x-axis here, and then the total percentage uh, of people without seizures. And you can see that basically it drops over time, particularly for people that just use medicines alone. Um, but in the group that had surgery, um, they still dropped. There's still some people for which surgery was not totally effective, uh, about half or a third of those that go through surgery. 
but um, they're quite a bit different than the, the people that just stuck with medicines only. Okay? So that's a huge reason why we recommend surgery in a lot of cases after so only after though, but only after someone has tried multiple medicines because surgery is not to be taken lightly. Of course, it's really, it's only for people who have at least tried a couple of medicines uh, first, because then we know that the likelihood of more medicines um, stopping their seizures is quite low. And similarly for children over here, uh, similar curves with the surgery group, uh, much doing much better than the medical therapy group. Oh, those are the numbers behind it in case anyone wants to look at them later. I think these slides will be available too. So, so how do we do epilepsy surgery? Well, um, it involves our surgeon, of course, Dr. Edward Chang is just an amazing surgeon, epilepsy surgeon. And we actually have the highest volume of epilepsy surgery on the West Coast, if you can believe it. Um, but we go, we look through a lot of really complex epilepsy cases. And many people are referred to us specifically because of drug-resistant epilepsy for which seizure will hopefully help. Um, but we, you know, we do all these studies that I mentioned back here to try to pinpoint where the seizures are coming from, but we do it from outside the skull. Uh, in order to be really sure where they come from, sometimes we actually need to do what's called an um, intracranial EEG study. So think of EEG on the scalp, but now the electrodes are actually placed inside the skull, either on the surface of the brain or um, with certain probes, they get put into deep structures in the brain because structures like the hippocampus are deep. And in order to record from there, these probes have to sort of enter and be placed there. Um, of course, this is just a temporary thing that patients stay with us in the hospital while they're being recorded. And then once seizures happen, we're, we're able to capture them on these electrodes and pinpoint um, the actual for sure focus where they're coming from. Uh, this is just an example of a brain here um, where there's depth electrodes, meaning these sort of stereo EEG um, types of electrodes. If I make it glass or transparent with some new kind of biomedical imaging techniques, you can see that each of these dots here is an electrode. And we're actually targeting this area of the patient's brain where there's sort of a scar tissue. It's called an encephalocele there. And that was likely generating their seizures, but we also wanna be sure they weren't coming from the hippocampus. And that's what this electrode is here. I can blow that up a little bit. Um, so the hippocampus in 3D now we're looking uh, and I've got it embedded in a glass brain in its position. Um, but you can see that these electrodes are coming through here and the ones in the front of the um, probe here are sampling the hippocampal tissue in particular. And this is a really wonderful thing for confirming where seizures come from. You can actually confirm where they come from and then proceed uh, as long as it's safe with a potentially curative surgery. So this is an example of intracranial EEG. Um, and here we actually have spikes in the hippocampus. These are these same electrodes. And you can see this activity on these electrodes, there's a big sharp burst there. And that is very abnormal to have. And that area, um, generated seizures in that same person uh, later on. So, so very helpful, but you can already kind of tell looking at all these different electrodes that, boy, this is a lot of data to look at. And actually we have quite a few electrodes and you have, we end up looking at all these traces sort of page by page, you know, 24 hours studies um, for usually several days. Um, and, but it really kind of shows you the pattern, like once a seizure starts somewhere and it spreads across the rows of a grid, for example, and then ev eventually you have the seizure end uh, after that, after the spread. But um, yeah, the, the technology that Dr. Wang was referring to was um, kind of developed for this whole problem of, this is a lot of data to look at and to understand. And we wanna be um, sure about what we're looking at. And so it would be nice to actually 
not only just look at this data by eye, but also actually have an ad, like a, a helper, uh, a helper software where we can plot it on the brain. Just say, okay, at this moment of the seizure, what does it look like as a heat map of the brain? So that's what that technology um, kind of was designed for. And uh, here's an example of uh, where this patient had quite a few electrodes implanted on the left side of the brain, as you can see, so a grid in this section, and then a little space between the next grid over here towards the back of their brain. Um, all these black dots are actually electrodes, just to make sure that's clear. If I rotate this brain to the inferior or bottom side, that's what you're looking at here. So we're only looking at half the brain. This is the bottom of the brain, the temporal lobe here. Um, just like this is the temporal lobe here, we rotate it and now it's right here. So those are the electrodes that were on the side of the brain. And now you can see that we actually have electrodes in the bottom of the brain too. Uh, and then just kind of wrapping around this section. We like to make sure that we cover the areas where we think the seizures are coming from and also so that we can watch where it spreads to hopefully understand um, why the person's seizures look like that and to confirm that those are the seizures that they typically have at home. So that if we were to base surgery on the recordings, that we are being sure that we're targeting the seizures that they have at home that are causing the, um, causing problems. So um, just to play this video, actually I should pause it quick. It's This is the actual data here that we are always used to looking at. And then this little window here, whatever's in that window is gonna get projected as a heat map over here onto the brain. So this is an eight minute seizure, if you can believe it. The person's um, aura started and aura is just like the first symptom of a seizure that someone might experience. This person's aura was a sort of twinkly light, uh, sort of rainbow twinkly light in the right side of their vision. And um, and we'll understand why that is soon because the visual cortex is right back here. And so when the seizure starts, you can see that it actually starts right by this visual cortex area. And it's on the left side of the brain. And so it makes sense that uh, that actually maps to the right side of the visual field. So the seizure is now spreading and I, and I shortened up an eight minute seizure into one minute. So we're watching at really fast motion speed here, but you can see it's spreading now. And this is really what seizures do. They spread across the cortex. Even though your, the original area is now more quiet, it's actually spreading into the areas that are important for understanding speech. We call it Wernicke's area. So at this point, and I was actually in the room with the patient when this happened, um, the person was no longer able to understand me at this point, even though they were initially because this area is supposed to help interpret speech. And then the seizure is now moving more anterior or forward beyond our electrodes, but it eventually takes over the speech producing area. So they become unable to talk at this point. And then pretty soon it goes into the secondarily generalization right here where it's a really strong tonic phase. And then this jerky sort of clonic phase of the seizure. So then the seizure is done there. Again, that was an eight minute seizure spread up, sped up really fast. And this, by the way, if anyone wants to see these again, these are all on YouTube. They were, uh, we published a paper last year. It's called, uh, the technique's called ictal cinema or opsia uh, or O-P-S-C-E-A. So this is another view of uh, seizures here. Uh, this is actually a different patient altogether. Um, this person had a grid over the frontal cortex here and then the temporal cortex here. And then they also had electrodes sort of uh, implanted underneath and also within uh, as depth electrodes in the brain. And this one, I'm gonna kind of play in really slow motion, but I'm also gonna rotate it so you can see things a little bit better um, and where the seizures are coming from. So you can see activity kind of moving a lot of different places in the brain, right? We rotate this around to see uh, another view. 
but you can see it kind of propagates or moves fast across the brain. But if you look, and I made this kind of little transparent here, there's actually a really big hot spot here that keeps going this whole time. And it's almost, it pretty much just kicks off activity that then spreads up through, um, through the front to the back of the brain. So this is a propagating seizure, but, um, and we were really confused by this when we thought it, there was actually multiple seizure onset zones, um, according to all the work that we did before they had this electrode study done inside the brain. But it turned out that they were all being generated from this spot here in the temporal lobe. It was, as you can see, kicking off activity that, that then just jumps up to that frontal cortex and propagates back. So in this patient, we ended up um, doing the surgery to remove the seizure onset zone after making sure that she was not going to have significant deficits, neurological deficits. And she's been seizure free over two years. So it's, it's a great outcome. And then this last sort of video I'm going to show you here is um, an example of, you know, there's a lot of differences in how seizures spread. I showed you the eight minute seizure that took a very long time. Actually, it's a long time to spread, right? But this one, actually, I'm only going to show you um, a half a second of real, real time data, but I slowed it down really slow motion so that you can see the details. Um, keep your eye up here on this brain. And actually, if I let this play a bit, these are just where the depth electrodes are. This section here, you can see the depth electrodes coming into the cross sections. But like I said, keep your eye on this brain up here because if you blink, you might miss it. Unless you have to blink, please feel free to blink anyway. There it goes. So started right here in what we call the posterior STG. It's just this gyrus here in the back part of it. But then it spread almost in an instant to a bunch of other areas, the temporal lobe, the bit of the parietal lobe, and also the frontal lobe up here. So really kind of an explosive onset of a seizure there. In these cases, we can usually help by removing the seizure onset zone, but it's not always the case. Um, surgery does have its limits. We can't just go doing surgery on everybody and think that we're gonna improve their outcomes. Even if we were to stop seizures, what about, every, what about other problems that surgery could cause? And surgery itself um, has risks, just like a surgery on your toe or anywhere else in the, in the body. So. Um, we usually avoid surgery for particular situations, including when seizures arise from one or more, uh, from more than one place in the brain, especially if it's kind of bilateral, both sides in the same structure. Um, and then seizures coming from brain regions that are just too critical to remove. So the areas of your brain that are in charge of language, for vision, for movement, especially arm movements, those are things that can cause um, massive disability for a person's life that would be permanent. Um, and then also, if removal of the brain tissue would cause other significant neurological problems, kind of alluding to the, the point above it. But, and then, of course, some patients just don't want brain surgery. They just are too averse to it. And that's totally understandable, too. But, you know, we, we always want to be really sensitive to that. But, um, you know, it's important to take in the context of how bad are the seizures, too. If the seizures are really, really dangerous and they're causing falls that are causing injury, um, that's a really tough situation. If it's, if the you know patient doesn't want brain surgery, we want to be sensitive to that, but we also worry. A lot of us um, are just kind of constantly thinking about the patients like that, I can guarantee. But other times, you know, if they're just small seizures and they really don't bother the person too much, maybe like once a month, they have a little subtle aura, but then it goes away. Um, that, per that person may not want the brain surgery and that would make sense too, totally understandable. And this is just an example of kind of uh, you know, Dr. Wong mentioned this patient HM. So the name, uh, after the person passed away a couple, uh, a little over a decade ago, they uh, 
released his name because he's the most studied patient in neuroscience, actually. Um, this is the patient Dr. Wong mentioned where uh, they removed both of his hippocampi because he was having terrible seizures that were thought to come from both hippocampi at the time. They also removed a couple other areas, including um, parahippocampal cortices, that's just area right by the hippocampus, the enterrhinal, the piriform, which I mentioned before, and the amygdala. Um, so after that, his seizures were a lot uh, under a lot better control. I think he may have actually been cured of epilepsy, but he was basically unable to retain any new information um, besides like sort of procedural memory or um, kind of motor sequences. Uh, but things like learning new people's names and such, like if you go into the room and then uh, tell him your name and just say, nice to meet you, and then come back 15 minutes later, he wouldn't remember ever meeting you. So this is really profound. And this happened back in the 50s. It was a really important case driving a lot of what we do now to make sure that we avoid major problems with epilepsy surgery. Just a great uh, example of that. But unfortunately, um, this patient contributed hugely to neuroscience, especially to the understanding of the hippocampus. Um, so, but uh, you might be saying to yourself, well, it is 2022. I mean, you know, we've got a lot of technologies now. Can't we just zap away these seizures? There's got to be something else, right? So what, what about those patients where we can't do surgery and the medicines are failing them? They're, they've tried so many and they're not doing the trick. Well, wouldn't it be nice, like in cardiology, where they have um, not quite a pacemaker, uh, but maybe a defibrillator, where a seizure starts, or just like um, an abnormal heart rhythm starts, and there's a zap, and then it uh, the heart goes back into regular rhythm. So for brainwaves, that was the original thought behind uh, one of the devices that is approved now called the RNS, or Responsive Neurostimulation. Uh, it's a device that just kind of listens for seizures in the brainwaves, and then when it detects it, it zaps. And then hopefully the seizures have stopped after that. Indeed, people have been thinking about this um, quite a bit and pursuing the technologies. And there's actually three stimulators on, on the market now that are approved. Um, I mentioned RNS just because it's got that um, idea of sort of responsive nerve stimulation, just like in cardiology. Um, that's one where we, um, so it's actually implanted um, with a depth electrode or even a strip electrode over the brain right at the seizure onset zone. So it's, you know, when we um, are doing these intracranial studies, if we find where the seizure onset zone is, um, but we realize that we can't remove it without significant risk to the patient, or if there's multiple sites, like two different seizure onset zones that would have to be um, treated, that's where this can come in handy because we can put the depth electrodes in these cortical strip leads right where the seizure onset zone is, and then have the neurostimulator device, which is really, it's a computer in a titanium case that is actually embedded right to the skull here, actually sort of like a plate in the head, but it's actually a computer in there. And this device just sits there listening to the brain waves. And then when it detects a seizure pattern, it zaps. And part, well, I'll, I'll mention more about this in a minute, but part of our job as epileptologists is to titrate that over time to try to target that person's individual seizures. And uh, it's actually pretty it's a pretty incredible time to be an epileptologist, increasingly so, because there are more and more people with these sorts of devices. And, you know, often people will come into the office uh, or on video visits, of course, and will ask how many seizures they're having, still having seizures, we would adjust the medicines. But in these cases, and sometimes, and of course, it's usually the, both medicines and these, we also are adjusting their stimulators saying, okay, well, it looks like based on your data that we're, we need to get ahead of the seizures a little bit more. So we're going to adjust the pattern to target this part instead or to this, this sort of rhythm. 
and then we change those settings. And then um, we hope that uh, the next time that they come back for their visit, they'll be having less seizures. And it's a process over time, but it's just like medicines are. It's a really a process over time. Um, so that's responsive neurostimulation where there's a lot of um, moving parts, but it's, a, it's very flexible in terms of where you can put the leads. And usually we're targeting the seizure onset zone. And then there are two other options. Vagus nerve stimulation was actually the first neuromodulation or neurostimulation option for epilepsy. Uh, it came out, like um, research mostly in like the 90s and late 90s, early 2000s, it sort of came on the market and um, picked up momentum. And we still use it today. So this is where um, you're, not, you're not actually stimulating in the brain, but you're stimulating kind of just uh, this nerve that is highly connected to the brain here. So the computer part goes into the chest, just like a pacemaker would, and the lead goes underneath the skin attached to the nerve. And it kind of constantly is stimulating, or not constantly, but stimulates for maybe a minute, and then five minutes it's off, and then a minute on, a minute off, 24-7. Um, um, you can adjust those parameters, of course, and make it not stimulate in certain periods if you'd like, but, um, but it's the idea of it is to prevent seizures, whereas the RNS system is more to detect seizures and try to stimulate them away when they start. Uh, and then there's another option, which is uh, also where we implant leads in the brain uh, called thalamic deep brain stimulation. But this is pretty similar to vagus nerve stimulation in that it's kind of just stimulating and then not stimulating, on, off, on, off. So the reason it's in the thalamus is because the thalamus is highly interconnected with a lot of different areas of the brain. And so if you stimulate there, the idea is that hopefully you'll be able to kind of keep um, activity, uh, prevent activity from synchronizing too much and getting too active and generating a seizure. So both these, you know, vagus nerve stimulation and thalamic deep brain stimulation are really just kind of always on, meaning like on and off, on and off to prevent seizures. Whereas the RNS symptom system is more kind of listening. It's like what we call a closed loop system, listening for seizures and then um, stimulating them when it detects them. Really, how do these work? Uh, of course, there's the RNS system I mentioned is hopefully kind of just zapping uh, seizures away, but that's not always the case. And um, it's tough to kind of see and uh, prove that in practice. Um, most, actually all these stimulators tend to have their best efficacy or effectiveness over time. And so the actual mechanisms with which we think they work is, of course, you know, sure, make it harder for seizures to start by raising the threshold. That's what we think VNS and DBS do. Um, also, maybe to prevent them from spreading so far. So either if you can zap them once they start, or if you can continuously sort of stimulate when they're already um, going, like in vagus nerve stimulation and DBS, maybe you can prevent them from spreading so far. Um, maybe get them to stop sooner once they've started. Um, that's particularly for RNS here, but also vagus nerve stimulation and deep brain stimulation. There's a magnet that the patient usually has with them or in the house and the family member, if a seizure is started, can go get the magnet, wave it over the, over the device, and there will be an extra stimulation delivered at that time, which is usually a little bit stronger stimulation since it's triggered with the magnet. Um, and then lastly, brain remodeling. So we're realizing more and more in recent years, including with a lot of research projects going on uh, at UCSF and other institutions, that the, um, the way that these stimulators may be working over time uh, is they might be sort of slowly remodeling the circuits in the brain, particularly the uh, circuits for epilepsy. Um, if they're kind of constantly just buzz or stimulate a little bit here and there, 
the connections, hopefully, between the, you know, the neurons that are involved in the seizure onset zone will get a little bit loose or just not as efficient uh, at, as, as they were before in generating seizures. So we also call this plasticity, where you're actually changing the connectivity over time. So we think that this is more likely um, the, one of the main reasons that these stimulators tend to work. And that's another reason why it takes kind of a long time to start to see significant benefit. But we really do see a lot of benefit in patients. Um, we can get anywhere from like a 50 to 75% reduction in overall um, total number of seizures for a person per month, uh, you know, after several years, okay? It's not like an immediate effect. It's not like we can turn this thing on and have a, a great effect right off the bat, but we really do see a lot of benefit for most patients over the course of time, or at least for most patients across these uh, stimulating devices. So yeah, that's the, kind of the newest frontier of epilepsy treatments. But again, we always try medicines first because it's really the lowest risk out of anything. And for the patients that um, remain uh, drug resistant, um, it's important to at least consider things like surgery and possibly a neurostimulator if surgery is not going to be feasible. Um, usually we would recommend surgery if we can over a neurostimulator because surgery, the goal of surgery is really a cure, like to cure the epilepsy itself if possible. But neurostimulators can be very helpful too, especially if surgery is not a great option for them. So yeah, a lot of different options for epilepsy and I hope um, this all kind of made sense that was fantastic, Dr. Clean. Thanks so much. I had a question for you. So you kind of mentioned this a lot for people who you're thinking about surgery a lot, a surgery for to treat epilepsy. What are some of the tools or procedures that you go through to determine whether it's safe for them to have surgery? Like, how do you know that an area of the brain is important for that particular person? Well, you can kind of speculate that a certain area is going to be pretty important for them just based on where it is. So like the visual cortex is probably going to have some function there um, or the language cortex. A lot of people would have function there, but really it's important to confirm that because epilepsy, especially like a seizure focus can damage an area of the brain. Or it's really kind of like a scar tissue in some ways. And the function that should be there actually can leave there over time. The brain remodels itself and shifts function to other places. So we can do some tests to find out, you know, hey, is there actually still functioning here or not? Because if there's not, then we could really have a chance here removing this seizure focus and helping cure this patient. So the way that we do that is um, uh, a couple of things. We use neuropsychological testing. So a lot of cognitive tests beforehand to see if they're, um, the way that they process information is what we would expect. Um, if it is, then we would say, okay, things are probably where they're supposed to be in the brain and not moved around. But if they process things, process things a little bit differently, then we can start to guess that maybe they've shifted things over time. To get a more direct measure of whether there's function around a seizure onset zone, uh, we can actually use what's called stimulation mapping. And this is you know, when the patients have electrodes implanted in the brain already and are staying with us up in the monitoring unit, um, or it's in the operating room itself, we can actually have the patients um, slowly come out of anesthesia and be awake during the surgery and very carefully and very comfortably with the anesthesiologist and the surgeon, making sure everything is nice and calm and having the patient actually see some pictures and naming the pictures or repeating the words that someone says or doing other tasks that are really, really relevant. So if it's the visual cortex, you're gonna show pictures. If it's the language cortex, you're gonna ask them to repeat other things like this. While they're doing this, the surgeon 
um, in the operating room or even me at the bedside if they're upstairs, we can stimulate the electrodes that are right around that seizure onset zone and literally produce a map of what the patient needs and what um, potentially doesn't have any function. There's always some sort of risk benefit aspects because we can never prove perfectly exactly that the outcome is what we anticipate based on that, but it is actually really quite good. And we've been very successful as many other centers have using stimulation mapping to feel much more confident in pursuing a resection that um, the patient ends up having a really good outcome. Thanks. And sort of related to that question, do you ever ablate a region in the brain instead of removing it with surgery? Ah, it's a great point. You know, I should have brought this up during the talk too. So you don't necessarily have to have an area sort of removed um, in total, like the actual tissue itself taken out, but you can use this uh, newer procedure called ablation. Um, and it's still kind of undergoing clinical trials right now, um, but we have some pretty good evidence that it works quite well and we're using it sort of off-label in, in a certain way, um, but it's quite effective. And, and the way to go about it is instead of, you know, removing a, a, an area of bone in order to get access to the brain, um, there's a hole that's made in, um, you know, in the area where the probe would need to go into, it's sort of like a, a lobe equipped with a laser, sort of a heating device on it. And it goes into the brain with, um, you know, a special, we call it stereotactic coordinates. So there's literally like um, a lot of amazing systems that are getting the three-dimensional coordinates of exactly where the surgeon needs to go based on the skull structure. And the probe goes in to target the seizure onset zone. Once it's there, it actually um, applies sort of like a little um, laser coring out procedure and it uh, ablates or um, renders that tissue no longer functional. And it uh, is pretty effective for a lot of people, um, although it is less effective than resection we've found. we found and other people have found. Um, it can actually be really helpful though when you have someone, for example, with a hippocampal um, seizure onset zone on the left side where their language sits just outside of that. So instead of having to go through the language cortex and remove that and have a risk of language deficits, you can actually bypass it with a laser and go in and remove or sort of ablate the hippocampus. And then you've spared all the language areas. Um, in those patients, like I said, it can be less effective and their seizures may come back, but at least then you still have the option if the patient wishes to pursue something like resection surgery. Great. And then why you sort of alluded to this, you kind of talked about this a little bit in your talk, but why do you think that the temporal lobe is so often the site of seizures as opposed to other areas of the brain? Mm, yeah. I mean, the temporal lobe is such a fascinating thing. You know, it's a sort of outgrowth from the brain that was no, not even there in lower mammals, but then has just, it was an outpouching and then it became bigger and bigger. And now we have a pretty sizable temporal lobe compared to pretty much all of the species. So, um, there was a lot of needs for it uh, to develop and to become larger and bigger. Um, one of those is thought to be our need for language, especially advanced language. And a lot of the language areas are sitting in the temporal lobe there. Um, also sort of information processing sits in the temporal lobe. So this area got pretty big. And uh, as I kind of alluded to before, um, it still houses our core memory machinery which is the same sort of memory machinery structures that other mammals and even reptiles and other um, organisms have. Um, it 
you know, it was created through evolution at some point and, and that was so effective and so important that it was preserved over time as we've gotten more and more evolved. But in order to do these incredible functions like memory and you know, pulling information out um, or whatever we want, kind of at a moment's notice, uh, it requires a lot of excitatory connections. It requires a lot of neurons that are talking to each other with a lot of activity. And when that happens, sometimes there can just be too much activity. And especially if there's something that happens such as an injury, um, you know, it's due to substances, due to an infection, something like that, uh, it can make all that extra crosstalk go overboard. And those neurons will basically kind of take in way too many ions like sodium and calcium, and they'll swell up. And when they get swollen up, they can start to have other processes go on, like releasing caspases and things like this. Um, but basically those lead to death of those cells, unfortunately. And that area then becomes scarred over tissue. Um, many times there's still function there in other areas of the structure. And so sometimes, you know, we can't even remove the hippocampus because we think it, you know, may be needed by the, the patient. Um, but the worse the epilepsy gets, that tends to be associated with worsened scarring out of that tissue, and then hopefully a chance to even remove it to help them. So yeah, that's really interesting. So do you think that maybe this three-layer older structure in trying to communicate with this kind of newer, like top of the line, <laughs> iPad or iMac Air, um, so all those connections that are formed somehow can short circuit more easily. Kind of, yeah. And, you know, that, putting it that way is kind of speculation. So I shouldn't, uh, you know, tout that theory too much. But clearly, people have shown that the high density of excitatory receptors, including NMDA in the, in the hippocampus, you know, it's one of the highest densities in the entire brain. That's really associated with this whole um, predisposition to excitotoxicity. And then um, there's a huge amount of what we call recurrent uh, synapses, recurrent um, axon circuitry, where neurons in one area, particularly the CA3 area of the hippocampus, the little sub area of it, they'll send off axons to talk to other neurons, but they'll also talk to other neurons right next to them, not just the downstream structure, but their neighbors. And when you have, you know, with epilepsy, you can get um, uh, neurons in that structure, the other nearby structures like the dentate gyrus, all like over synapsing with each other, like way, way too many synapses. They call this mossy fiber sprouting is, is one way to put it. And that, um, again, having one neuron talk to way more neurons than it's supposed to, if that happens across a lot of neurons, you could imagine that that leads to excitotoxicity. Okay. Um, next set of questions is really interesting. <laughs> so what if you um, have a patient that has these recurrent events that's really affecting their life, but you uh, do all these recordings um, and you don't find a seizure and maybe there's some features of the seizure that don't seem like they can be mapped onto the brain. So yeah. like psychogenic or non-epileptic seizures. All right. And you're talking about like when we do the EEG sort of process and things in the MRI. Yeah. How do you uh, diagnose those and how do you treat those? Yeah, conditions? absolutely. So that's a really important thing to, to, um, consider in our in our field because actually we have the epilepsy monitoring unit where people come in get an EEG on and they stay with us for a few days um, sometimes several days and the point of that is to figure out what where their seizures are coming from or what their seizures are 
uh, what type they are, but sometimes even if they are seizures. Um, so about a quarter of the patients that come to our epilepsy monitoring unit are diagnosed with non-epileptic seizures. And this is sort of a, a, psychiatrically, a psychiatrically driven um, symptom where it, it looks for all the world like a seizure. Um, you know, the person may have convulsions, they may have certain movements of their face, their arms, um, or other experiences, uh, or other symptoms that we see, but it's not driven by abnormal electrical activity. And so the stay in the, uh, the, the, stay in the epilepsy monitoring unit is really important because they have the EEG on, and when they're going through one of their typical episodes, typical for them, they, um, you know, we can see normal brain activity um, during that time. So really that's diagnostic um, for non-epileptic seizures. So um, the treatment for non-epileptic seizures is very, very different than the treatment for epileptic seizures. Again, epileptic seizures being seizures or abnormal movements and behaviors and such that are driven by abnormal electrical activity in the brain. So for non-epileptic seizures, these are um, events that uh, tend to be driven by sort of deep down, deep-seated um, disturbances with mood or anxiety or stress, sometimes prior trauma. Um, oftentimes it's really terrible things that, has, that have happened to someone in the past, whether it be distant past or recent past. And it's sort of a way for the body, the mind-body connection to um, pr produce a way or to cope with it but it's not exactly a healthy way because it comes out in these events that look like seizures, epileptic seizures. A person may go to the emergency room, have 911 called for them, um, and they may get put on a lot of anti-seizure medicines, which are really only going to cause them side effects and not help them. So if we can help diagnose them with non-epileptic events, we can then get them hopefully down the right treatment track, which is actually finding ways to uh, work on mental health to visit these deep-seated sorts of disturbances in mood, prior traumas, other things that can be driving these non-epileptic events. One of the biggest um, things we tend to recommend is cognitive behavioral therapy. It's a type of mental health therapy where you focus mostly on what's, what deep things are driving these in the background. And then you focus on what the triggers are and what the contexts are in which these events occur. And then you focus on how to sort of divert yourself from going down roads where it leads to these um, sort of non-epileptic spells and trying to find other ways to cope and to, to deal with these um, deep-seated symptoms that are not non-epileptic in more healthy ways. Yeah, I think it's an interesting field. And luckily, we have an expert here on campus that uh, luckily is able to um, join a talk recently, Dr. Vivek Dada. Yeah, he specializes in this group of disorders that we're really learning a lot more about. So functional neurologic disorders and PNES or psychogenic non-epileptic seizures are a part of FND. And it's just fascinating what we're learning about uh, the different circuits in the brain that are affected um, you know, that are not your classic hippocampal temporal lobe, but maybe higher up like temporal parietal junction or deeper within the brainstem. So it's a really cool field. And yeah. unfortunately, yeah, not one size treatment fits all right now, it seems yeah. like. Um, but yeah, CBT yeah. is definitely a mainstay. And um, this patient uh, or one of our participants mentioned a dynamic neural retraining system. 
which um, I've heard about, but I don't think that there are any studies. Uh, do you know of any studies, Dr. No. Clean, is this under, on this? Is this under the realm of sort of biofeedback or is this more of a... I, I think, think it, yeah, I think it's a form of biofeedback for uh, targeting the limbic system. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, if it's um, under the biofeedback umbrella, you know, people are finding um, increased effectiveness for some of these biofeedback approaches. And there's a lot of companies that are kind of up and coming on, you know, finding ways to be able to look at your own brain waves and to try to learn over time how to kind of modulate them. And for epilepsy, the idea would be if you notice rhythms or sensations that might be associated with um, maybe impending seizures that you can kind of retrain your brain on how to divert away from them. Um, but I think right now we're still, the evidence is not quite there in terms of um, recommending this on a mass scale, uh, but it is, it seems to be showing some pro um, progress and some hopefully future implications. Cause that would be great if it's another, especially non-medical option where the person doesn't have to take another pill and can learn other ways such as you know, even relaxation techniques to kind of use their own biofeedback to tone things down. I hope that's what this um, particular therapy is under the umbrella of so I'm speaking about something totally different. I'm glad you mentioned Vivek Dada too. He's a really great provider and yeah. And non-epileptic seizures, just to kind of mention a couple of more things, you know, um, there's some really crucial points about them. They are very real. Unfortunately, some patients are told that they're not, or they're fake or something like that. They're absolutely not fake. They're a real psychiatric um, condition and they need, so they're real. Um, they cause a lot of um, impact on someone's quality of life and they also can be treated. So those are important things we really try to emphasize to patients. Great. Well, thank you all for uh, joining us. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.